0: We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 12 this morning. This is the farewell address, as it were, from Samuel to Israel. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. 1 Samuel, chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us, "...or taken anything from any man's hand." And he said to them, "...the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand." And they said, "...he is witness." And Samuel said to the people, "...the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt." Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And, he, and the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak, And Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, For whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your King. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, Lord, we ask that you would use your word to teach us, to change us, to mold us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Show us our sin. Show us the great grace that you give to us in the person and work of Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have come here now to Samuel's farewell address. It is the climax of the renewal of the kingdom by Israel. And Israel needs to learn something about their relationship with the Lord, their God. But the truth is, so do we. We need to learn more about our relationship with the Lord. And so Samuel spares no effort here in putting forth before Israel and before you and before me the truth of who God is and what our relationship with the Lord is founded upon. And so three things come to us from this text in this order. First, there is seeing our sin. We must begin By seeing our sin. It is essential for our relationship with the Lord that we understand our own sin. And then the second thing we have is knowing the terror of the Lord. Knowing who God is. His sovereignty, His power. Knowing that He hates sin should strike terror into us. But the third thing we see is that foundation of our relationship, and that is the undeserved grace that the Lord lavishes upon us. Seeing our sin, knowing the terror of the Lord, an undeserved grace. Let's begin then by seeing our sin. There is trouble now in Israel, but this is not a a recent phenomenon. As as a matter of fact, life in the promised land has not exactly gone according to the expectation of the Israelites. If you were an Israelite in these days, you might have expected that life after Egypt would be perfect. After all, God had rescued you from slavery and bondage and brought you into a land of milk and honey. And doesn't God want your life to just be perfect? Isn't this kind of how we view our relationship with God at times, especially when we first come to know the Lord? We think, now we believe in Jesus, so what does that mean? I never have to worry about money again. God's always going to provide, so I'll always have money, no matter what. And I'll never be sick again, because God loves me. He wouldn't want me to be sick. I'm going to be in perfect health the rest of my life, and My relationships are all going to be perfect now. I'm never going to fight with anyone in my house, in my family, at work. Everything is going to be just perfect. Now, that may be our assessment. But that assessment does not survive 15 to 30 minutes with reality, does it? Because what really happens is our lives, in a a very real sense, are the same. You don't believe in Jesus and get a new house and a car. You have the house and the car you have. But the difference is by believing in Jesus, you can be content with whatever you have. You don't instantly have good health after you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have illness or sickness or cancer or chronic pain, you still have it. But believing in Jesus helps you to deal with that. Your relationships don't all of a sudden become perfect that you always have the right thing to say. But believing in Jesus allows you to bear with those who sin against you. And it allows you to go to others and confess your own sins to repair relationships. You see, our initial view of life when things don't go our way is to blame God. This is built into our nature. Think about it. Anytime anything goes badly, our first proclivity is to find an excuse. Oh, the sun was in my eyes. I was tired. Oh, you don't know how he treated me. Oh, no one can do that around here. Our first instinct is to provide an excuse that takes all of the blame far away from us. And sometimes this especially leads us to blame God. Because if things aren't going the way we want them to go, then God must be at fault. After all, hasn't He promised us everything? Isn't He able to do anything? So if that's true, why isn't my life perfect? The problem is, is that God has failed me. You see, oftentimes we may not verbalize that. But that's how we live. And that's exactly what Israel had been doing for generation upon generation. And so what Samuel does is he starts with a recap of his ministry. He is going to leave Israel no excuses. He is stripping away all of their excuses to force them to look in the mirror. And the very first thing he says is I did exactly what you asked me to do. I gave you a king. And we know the rest of 1 Samuel, but it's as if Samuel is saying, any of the problems you get here, on you, not on me. I told you you shouldn't have a king. You wanted a king. I did what you asked me to do. I did exactly what you asked me to do. You see, there's no excuse here. The Israelites can't say, oh, we would have obeyed God if only Samuel hadn't given us a king. No, no, no. Samuel did exactly What they asked. And he says, you've seen my life since my youth, how I have served the Lord and served him selflessly. Now, the irony here is, we've seen that too, haven't we? Starting at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, you remember Hannah making the little tiny robes every year for Samuel? so that he could minister before the Lord from when he was very small, three and four years old, until now he is an old, old man. It is a long span of time. And what Samuel does is he says, if anyone has anything that I'm to blame for, bring it up now. Have I taken anything? Have I oppressed anyone? And Israel has to admit that there is no such incident. There is no excuse. They can't blame Samuel. They might have tried to blame Eli's sons before. They might have tried to blame other leaders before. They can't blame Samuel. Samuel asks to defend himself, and there is no charge against him. Then the second thing that Samuel does is he turns from defense counsel to prosecutor. And he begins saying, what about the Lord? Let me remind you of the Lord's faithfulness. Who is the Lord? Have you forgotten who He is? He's the one who appointed Moses and Aaron to rescue you from Egypt. He's the one who brought you up out of Egypt. Now what does that mean? What it means is when you were in bondage, when you had no hope, when all you could do was cry out, God delivered you. Look at verse 8. He made, he brought them out of Egypt and made them to dwell in this place. God is the one who rescued and established them. And then Samuel begins to fire off a series of events in rapid succession that occurred during the time of the judges. There were a series of crises in which Israel cried out for help. And what? What did God do? He delivered. He says, do you remember when the Philistines oppressed you? What did God do? He delivered you. Do you remember when Sisera oppressed you? What did God do? He delivered you. Do you remember when the Moabites oppressed you? What did God do? He delivered. God is not the problem. He has not failed you. He has not abandoned you. Now you see, this is a real challenge for us in our everyday lives. Now we're not enslaved by Sisera or Egyptians or other tribes. But as we face our own challenges in our lives, when things don't go our way, our first move is to blame God. And what Samuel instructs us is that we need to stop making excuses for ourselves. We need to examine ourselves and see our own responsibility so that we can move on from that to the relationship with the Lord. Because the fundamental problem is not God. The fundamental problem is our sin. And so Samuel has already laid the groundwork for the goodness of God. And the people have acknowledged it. They cried out, we are witnesses. And so what Samuel does is he begins pleading the cause of God. Look at verse 7. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord. Now... This word plead is not used here in the Hebrew and in this sense in the way that we often think of it. Our first way of thinking about pleading is someone on their knees begging. Oh, I'm pleading with you. Please help me, help me. Don't have that image in your mind of Samuel. He's not on his knees pleading. God is not pleading with Israel just to give him another chance. No, the word here for plead is very closely related to a word we've seen over and over again in 1 Samuel. It is the word to judge or justice. And when he's using the word plead here, he's using it like a lawyer would. If you've ever had involvement with a lawyer or a court case, you know what pleadings are. They are long-written pronouncements to get things into evidence into court or to state facts. That's what Samuel is doing here. He's filing a pleading before God about the righteousness of God. Now, you see, the interesting thing is, we might think of the righteous acts of God as rescuing Israel from Egypt and delivering Israel from the Moabites and delivering Israel from the Philistines. But that's not all that Samuel says. You see, the righteous acts of God that he pleads include God's rescuing them, but they also include His judgments on them. Those are the righteous acts of God. When they fell into the hands of Sisera. When they fell into the hands of the Philistines. When they fell into the hands of the Moabites. That is God being righteous. Why is that? You see, God had warned them when He brought them out of Egypt to remember where they had come from. He warned them to remember the importance of the relationship that they had with the Lord. What did Israel do? Look at verse 9. They forgot the Lord their God. Over and over again, the Israelites were the victims of serial amnesia. Over and over again, they began forgetting what God had done. And how does this happen? You see, we might look at them and say, well, they're fools. How could they not get the picture when the Philistines oppressed them? How could they not get the picture when the Moabites oppressed them? And the idea is is that we don't get the picture either. Because what happens is comfort and desire brings about amnesia. When the Israelites became comfortable, when their desires were being fulfilled, they forgot God. And this is something we see throughout all of the Bible and throughout history. The more we experience comfort and safety, the less we attribute it to God and the more we attribute it to ourselves and what we deserve. This is the story of the church in the United States. Let me tell you, it is not theologians in India where Christians are burned alive. It is not theologians in the Sudan where Christian children are kidnapped and taken away. It is not Christians in China where the state comes against them who are thinking about doubts about the power of God. They don't write treatises on how God is weak or absent. It's Christians in the United States where we are comfortable, where we are protected, where we are safe where our idea of persecution is someone says something not so nice about us at a dinner party. You see, the more comfortable we are, the easier we lose sight of God. And this problem occurs over and over again because that's the nature of our sin. That's why it keeps happening to Israel. That's why they don't get the picture. But God is righteous and He will not leave us in our amnesia. He sends judgments upon His people to shock them out of their amnesia and to remind them of their relationship with the Lord. Because, you see, the problem is that often we think that we don't need God or that God isn't able. This is what happened to Israel after they'd been delivered from all of these tribes and warring nations, now all of a sudden a king comes up, Nahash, and all of a sudden God can't do anything now. They forgot who God was. Now the next thing that Samuel does is he does something that we don't particularly like. He begins to remind them that the Lord is the one who has given them a king in verse 13. The Lord has set a king over you. What that means is is that God is still sovereign. You may have a king, but the king answers to the king, the Lord God. And this means that the Lord is still in charge. And then he does something, as I said, that we don't particularly appreciate often. In verse 14, he tells them to fear the Lord. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you, you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Now we are not used to thinking this way, are we? We like to think that love is the only proper motivator. Now love is a motivator. But what we need to know and understand is who God is, that God is sovereign. And far too often we think of God as being someone who is powerless, who is pleading with us. And, you know, after all, it would be nice if we obeyed God, kind of gentlemanly. But there won't be any actual consequences, right? Because God's really just there to meet our needs, isn't He? He's just there to make sure everything works works out best for us so we can have our best life. And what Samuel reminds us is that we must remember the consequences of disobedience. What happened in the time of the judges was not random. It was God's righteousness reminding them of the fundamental relationship that Israel had with the Lord. The Lord was not going to let them wander off into the distance. They were His people. And so as they start to forget Him, He will remind them with the sharp edges of judgment. Because you see, what is crucial is our relationship with the true and living God. When we forget that, nothing else matters. Rebellion only leads to a disaster because that would mean that God would be against us, because God cannot support sin. And so this reminder can keep us on the right path and remind us of the goodness of God. The fear of the Lord can be something that keeps us in the path of following God, and that is good. It is a jog to our memories. But this is something that is, as I said, hard for us to understand. And so, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a discussion, a disagreement with someone, in which you have marshaled all of your facts, and they're tightly bound with impeccable logic, and you have put together an argument that is faultless, and you can't imagine anything but just your opponent saying, you're right. And instead, what seems inevitably to happen is they look at you and they say, well, I just don't believe that. Well, why? I just don't. Well, what part of my argument did you not get? I'm not really listening to your argument. I just don't. I don't think that's right. Sometimes, logic isn't enough. And so Samuel has laid out a crisp lawyer's case against Israel, showing them their own sin, showing them their need of God, showing them God's deliverance. But now what is needed is confirmation of why they should fear God. It's not just an intellectual argument. And so he brings his case to the highest point. He says, Now therefore, in verse 16, Now, therefore, stand still. Now, there's something interesting about the language here. This phrase, and now, occurs in verse 2, in verse 7, and in verse 13. And in each one of those instances, it's like a part of the argument Samuel is making. In verse 2, and now you know I have served faithfully. In verse 7, and now you know the Lord has been faithful. And then in verse 13, and now consider the alternatives. Now, therefore, the capstone of his argument is this. Stand still and see. Samuel's bringing it to urgency. He's going to show Israel the importance of the stakes before them. That this is about their covenant relationship with the Lord. He's going to show Israel of the importance of why they should fear God, because God is not impotently pleading with them. And so he does so through a show of a mighty storm. Now, you have to get the picture here. He says it's going to rain, and it does. But this is not a natural phenomenon. This is not luck. Some of you may have seen uh, yesterday, it, there was a torrential downpour. And like an hour later, it was gorgeous and sunny. That, that happens in Cady. Okay? So we might not get what's going on here. The key is, Samuel says, it is wheat harvest season. So I want you to substitute in your mind, it is August in Cady. And then he says, God will send rain. Now substitute in your mind, and the Lord will send half a foot of snow. And it happens. You are not going to wonder if there's a meteorological anomaly. A half a foot of snow does not fall in Katy ever, let alone in August. Your reaction would be exactly what the Israelites' reaction is. Fear and trembling. Who is this God? How powerful is he? You see, Samuel puts an exclamation point on the teaching that he is giving them. Only God has power like this. And on cue, he sends a storm. It is a clear sign of the power of God. And it is a clear sign that the covenant curses that he has warned Israel about are not just words on a page. They actually mean something. That God actually cares about His relationship with His people. And that He is willing to fight for it. He is even willing to fight against Israel for it. This is important for us to remember who God is. The third thing we see is the foundation for this relationship. And it's the undeserved grace... ...that God gives to us. God shows us, He has shown us... ...what our idolatry looks like to Him. It is wickedness. It is worthy of punishment. And we need to see how serious He is... ...about our sin and our idolatry. And when we see that, we are afraid. But then the question comes... ...how do we deal with that fear... Does God want us just to fear Him? Certainly not. So what Samuel says next is marvelous, even if it is a bit confusing. Look at verse 20. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Now, does that make sense to you? Because it doesn't make sense to me. Let me ask my experts here. Let me ask all my young people. Dad comes up to you and says, I saw what you did. You broke the house rules. You are guilty. Don't be afraid. No, I don't see that one coming. I see be afraid. Be very afraid. That's what I see. This makes no sense here. We've just said that God is a God to be feared, that His power is beyond anything that we imagine, and He's just told us that our sin is visible before Him, that we are worthy of judgment. So what's going on here? It's the next word. The next word is the most hopeful word in all of the Bible. Yet. There's another way the Bible uses that word. But. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God. You see, the but, the yet, is the yet of the gospel. It reminds us that we should fear God because we deserve everything that's coming to us. But God is gracious and merciful. You see, the Bible clearly shows us our sin in all of its blackness. It doesn't hide it. That's what Samuel has been doing. Samuel could have said, don't be afraid. It's really not that big of a deal. This thing about the king, it'll blow over, right? Isn't that what we do when we want someone not to be afraid? We tend to minimize what's going on. It's not so big of a deal. No, Samuel says, don't be afraid. It's a humongous deal. But God's bigger than that. His mercy and grace is greater than your sin. The yet is to go forward in the grace of God. You see, what the enemy of your soul wants is for you to dwell on your sin. He wants you to replay it over and over and over again in your head. He wants you never to move past it so you are paralyzed. If I dwelt on my own sin, I would never stand in this pulpit and preach. I would constantly tell myself what a hypocrite I am. How false I am. How I do not measure up. If you dwelt upon your own sin, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. But you see, the way of the gospel is to go forward. To go forward in faith with the Lord. This is why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to show us the best path to travel on. Jesus did not come to give us better life skills. Jesus came to pay for our sins so that we would not have to look back. So that we would know we have a new life and we can go forward. Brothers and sisters, you cannot reverse the consequences of your sin. They remain. Despite all your best intentions, despite all your sorrow, despite all your apologies, the consequences of your sin remain. If you murder someone, you cannot bring them back to life. You see, sin has consequences. But all you can do And what you should do is to go forward in the fresh grace of God. This is what the Apostle Paul did. If anyone should be wallowing in his sin, replaying his sins, it should be Paul. He was a murderer. He killed men, women, and children. And what does Paul say in Philippians 3? Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, how can you do this? You can do it because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new when? Every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. That is not just the God of Jeremiah writing that in Lamentations. It's not just the God of Paul. It's not just the God of Samuel. That is your God. And so if you have sinned horrifically, if you don't know why God should love you, or how you can go on, or how you can fix what has gone on in the past, what the Lord tells you is, you don't need to fix the past. Jesus has. You need to go forward in the grace that God has given you. This is where kind of pop culture has, I think, a bit of a biblical insight. It's this whole concept of pay it forward, right? You do something because you've been blessed. You bless someone in front of you with the idea that they will then receive that blessing And bless someone in front of them. That's how we are to live our lives. Except for you've been given more than you could ever possibly pay forward. Jesus Christ has brought you the forgiveness of your sins. He's given meaning to your life. He's given you hope and eternal life. Live in that life. Go forward in the confidence and the power of the faith of Jesus Christ. How can this be? How can I go forward? Won't God hate me? Why should God forgive me? You see, the reality is, and Samuel tells us that the covenant relationship that we have with the Lord depends on Him, not on us. Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. You see, God will not abandon His people. And we have that assurance because of the character of God. It's not our effort that ties us to God. It is the character of God. Now, let me tell you something theologically. The primary and main purpose that Jesus came, lived, and died for was not the salvation of sinners. The primary and main purpose that Jesus came and lived and died for was the glory of God. And God is glorified in the redemption of sinners. And so your redemption is rooted in the glory of God. How would God not stand for His glory? And if He will stand for His glory, He must redeem you. Because that is how He is glorified. Now that is a place we can rest in, can't we? Rather than, I had a pretty good day today, I prayed twice, read my Bible, trying to memorize a verse, got half a verse down. I don't know about you, I want to stand in the glory of God. You see, that's what Samuel tells the Israelites and what he tells us. His grace is for His glory. God delights in turning death to life, in turning ashes to beauty. You don't need to be the one that holds up this relationship. God knows you can't. That's why He sent Jesus. So in conclusion, it is right for you to know how sinful you are. It is right for you to fear the Lord so that we know who the Lord is. But it is crucial that we remember that the foundation of our relationship with the Lord is His grace. It is His grace for His glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.